0: Greetings from the United Nations. I am here all week, of course, for the UN General Assembly, and today's show is going to be something a little different. So every year during UN Week, there are a number of substantive and important issues discussed, new initiatives launched, and new partnerships formed, typically around some really big, important global issues. It really is the week in the diplomatic calendar in which a lot of problem-solving gets done. Now, the thing is, this aspect of UN Week rarely gets covered by the mainstream media, which so often chases the big headlines in general, and this year, Donald Trump in particular. But there is so much happening beyond Trump, so today I wanted to shine a spotlight on one particular initiative launched this week to help the international community and countries of the developing world better collect data around agricultural productivity this initiative is called 50 by 2030 the 50 refers to 50 countries from the developing world which will participate in the data collection initiative and 2030 refers to the end date in which the sustainable development goals are due Key partners on this initiative include the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, USAID, the Government of Australia, the Government of Germany, the World Bank, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN, and the International Fund for Agricultural Development. It was launched at the United Nations this week. I attended the launch and it included something totally different and unexpected, frankly. In advance of a panel discussion, which was well expected, two individuals told powerful personal stories that helped make this discussion very real. These individuals were trained by the Moth Global Community Program. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, the Moth is a storytelling nonprofit that has an amazing podcast, to which I'll post a link. So to kick off this episode, you're going to hear about a seven-minute personal story from Edward Mambaya, a development economist from Zimbabwe. And that story, I think, will provide an important grounding for my longer conversation with Claire Melmed, who is CEO of the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data. I'll post a link to the webcast of this event, which was archived on globaldispatchespodcast.com and on UN Dispatch. And I encourage you all to, to check it out and to view the other story that was told by Harriet Mugera, a Kenyan economist. Both were incredibly powerful. Okay, so here is Edward Mambaya on the floor of the Trusteeship Council of the United Nations. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture each month dr gary eslanian from the world health organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health award-winning journalists and authors and frontline public health workers join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four launching in june global health matters is available on apple podcasts spotify and youtube
1: The best part about growing up in rural Zimbabwe in the 1980s is that I had absolutely no idea that we were poor. See, these are the days before WhatsApp, Facebook, YouTube, MTV Cribs, and way before the Kardashians. As little kids, our dreams and imaginations were bounded by the big, big mountains that surrounded my village. We did not know what we did not have, and in this blissful ignorance, we were happy. We were very happy. I'm the seventh of 11 children, and like most Africans, I was born and raised on a small rural farm. I have such fond memories of my childhood in the village. With my best friends, Thomas and Wilfred, we spend most afternoons playing with handmade toys, herding cattle, and working in the fields. Through some combination of religious beliefs and traditional beliefs, life in the village always felt like you're acting out a movie script written for somebody else. When tragedy struck, like when my cousin died of malaria, we were told that this was part of God's plan. When the harvest was good, we looked up to the heavens and we gave thanks and praise. In this life that we had very little control over, fate and destiny we are convenient, if not comfortable explanations for this journey that we call life. Fast forward 20 years, I just finished my PhD in agricultural economics at Cornell University, when I went back home in December of 2003. There's nothing like being home for the holidays. The whole village always feels like one happy family reunion. So on Christmas Day that year, just after church service, my brothers and I headed to the tiny little grocery store that also doubled as a village bar over the holidays. By the time we got there, there was already a small crowd of young men dancing to loud music and catching up on the local gossip. My brothers and I found a corner in this smoke-filled room and we ordered a couple of warm beers. So I'm sitting in this room, and after a while, I see this older guy with slightly worn clothes. He's been looking at me for a while, and he starts walking towards me. He kind of looked like a beggar, but given that this was a village, I gave him the benefit of doubt. He came to me, I greeted him, and I wished him a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Just as I was about to turn over to my brothers, the man taps me on the shoulder and said, Hey, Ed. It's me, Thomas. Remember me? What? Thomas? My best friend Thomas from primary school? I tried very hard to cover this look of shock in my face. He looked much older and withered. Very quickly, I recovered and I exchanged our secret childhood handshake, which I will not share with you guys because I took an oath to secrecy when I was 10. And I intend to keep it. I invited Thomas to sit down. And Thomas told me that life had not been too kind to him. He still lived in the nearby village where he farmed a small piece of land. He had a couple of gods. He was married and he already had five children. He was especially proud of his oldest daughter Naomi, who he said she was very, very athletic. After a while, Thomas shared with me the struggles of trying to support a family as a smallholder farmer. He told me that on most days, he spent countless hours in the fields, equipped with nothing other than a garden hall and a father's dedication to provide for his family. And yet every year, Thomas and his family barely harvested enough to feed themselves. And every night, he prayed for a better life for his children. In a way, Thomas' life was exactly like that of his parents before him and probably that of his grandparents before them. Nothing had changed. As I went back to bed that night, I could not sleep. As I struggled with this question of how our lives turned out to be so different. This is a guy that sat next to me in primary school. This is a guy that taught me to write my first love letter. What had happened? Was I just lucky while Thomas had been unlucky? Was all this random without any rhyme or reason? Was this God's plan? Well, God's plan felt like a comfortable explanation for my life. It did not sound like a fair explanation for Thomas and his children. More importantly, as a development economist now, the old explanation of fate just was not doing it for me anymore. I wanted to look for a more causal explanation of how our lives had turned out to be so different. As I started to trace back to our childhood, I realized that our past had started to split just after primary school. Thomas went to a nearby secondary school that was under-resourced. I went to uh, a Catholic missionary boarding school that was a little bit more expensive. Like other success stories in my village, my parents had invested just a little bit more in our education. Perhaps there should be no surprise here as we all know the transformative power of education. However, as I dug deeper, another clear pattern emerged. I realized that the successful families in the village were also some of the best farmers. These are farmers who had gone from just producing enough food to feed themselves to making the most out of their land. These are the farmers that had wore terraced fields that used a combination of manure and chemical fertilizers to keep their soil, filthy, uh, their soil fertile. These are farmers that insisted on planting only quality certified seed of improved varieties. And these are farmers that followed the advice of the agricultural extension officers religiously. It looks like farming beyond subsistence had somehow opened up new horizons for their children. This, my friends, is how I made it out of my village. Now, this story is not unique to me. Globally, there are about two billion people that derive their livelihoods from smallholder agriculture. In Africa alone, almost two-thirds of the population rely on rural farming. And yet, these are also some of the poorest people in the world. These are people that seem to be stuck in this vicious cycle of poverty. I stand before you today as living proof of the power of agriculture to transform rural lives, the power to feed people, and yes, the power to give dignity to people. I still believe that there's an element of luck, fate, and destiny in everybody's life but I also believe that there's a lot that we can do to improve the odds of those billions of people that are stuck in this vicious cycle of poverty. Unfortunately, I think it's too late for my best friend Thomas. However, it's not too late. It's not too late for his daughter Naomi. Thank you.
0: And I think that story will provide some really good grounding for a conversation more about data and facts and figures and statistics that I have with Claire Melmed, who is the CEO of the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data. Here is Claire.
2: Agricultural data is any data which helps governments to understand agriculture. So for any sector governments need a certain amount of information to be able to know what to do where to put money where the jobs are where the problems are and agriculture is no different so there's a specific kind of data that governments collect um often surveys of farmers so they'll go out into the fields and they'll look for a representative sample of farmers who grow different kinds of crops in different kinds of soil conditions and they'll ask them some questions about what do you farm? What kind of yields do you get? What are the problems that you face? Um, so there's specific data which is collected about agriculture.
0: And most countries do this. Yeah. Developed countries, developing countries perhaps less well, but every country that has farms collects this kind of data. Absolutely.
2: As they do in any other sector of the economy. And why?
0: What's? What's? Why would they collect this kind of data?
2: Well, it's interesting. Governments didn't used to collect so much data when they weren't trying to do as much stuff. Clearly, if all you want to do, if governments, you know, a few hundred years ago, all they wanted to do was make sure that nobody invaded them and there wasn't a revolution. And you don't need very much you know, to know very much about your population to do that. But if, like most governments now, you're also trying to run a health service, run an education service, take some responsibility for making sure that people have decent jobs, hopefully prevent climate change so that people don't get washed away in a flood, then what you need to know to, to put money in the right place or to make sure that you're making the right decisions about how you regulate companies or all of those things depends much more on having the right information. If you don't know how many children are born every year, how do you know how much money to put into maternity services? If you don't know, in the case of agriculture, how many farmers are producing maize, how do you know whether it matters if there's some sudden pest that's going to eat all your maize crops? You need to know a certain basic amount of, it, you know, of information about your country to know how to run it effectively.
0: So compared to other sectors, say health, as you mentioned before, is data on agriculture like generally lacking?
2: I always find it quite surprising given how important agriculture is for the economy and therefore, for the politics of so many countries in Africa in particular, how poor the data is. That there was a, there was a study recently, um, by the Marie Foundation about data in Africa. And they found, you know, there's many areas across the continent in which data is lacking, but agriculture is absolutely one. And, you know, I don't, it's difficult to sort of speculate on what's caused this. We know agriculture is politically hugely important. And yet it's relatively under-invested in from a data point of view. I think that's probably partly the responsibility of donors who've perhaps not focused enough on data for agriculture in recent years compared to, say, the investments that have gone into data for health from a number of big programmes. So you know, hopefully the, the announcement that's being made at the UN this week is going to go some way to addressing that balance. And,
0: and we'll, we'll talk about that, that announcement, but I still want to sort of set the scene a, a little bit. Sure. So can you maybe walk me through like an example or a story of um, a country or a farmer or something sort of concrete um, that sort of illuminates or, or helps, helps to sort of make real of this problem of data and on agriculture and how it affects sort of individual lives?
2: Okay, well, one of the, um, one of the examples that, that came up in some of the research that, that we did was, um, in, in Tanzania, country, very poor country, very dependent on maize. You know, many of the farmers are producing maize. It's really important for them as a food crop. It's also important, it's what they sell. Um, and there was a few years, um, between 2001 and 2004 when the yields of maize dropped. You know, so farmers, they were growing, you know, they have a certain size of field. They're growing maize. One year they get, you know, certain amount. The next year it's halved or a quarter of what they had previously got. Now, obviously for people's lives, that's, that's their income. That's their food and their income for the whole year. It's a complete calamity, but people didn't really understand why this was, ha- was happening and they didn't have the data to know, you know, was this something that happened? Was had some climate? conditions change suddenly it was their pests or you know what happened so they didn't know what happened and obviously that means that the government's much less effective in knowing how to make life better for those farmers in the short term and how to prevent it from happening again and happening in the longer term so you know it's the it's those sort of dramatic shocks that governments need to have information about as well as supporting kind of long-term change so you know like as in as in many countries um there's fewer and fewer young people who want to farm and a lot of people are leaving the countryside so again governments need to understand how the sort of demographics of farming are changing to know how to make sure that they will actually get the right amount of food produced in their country um in the longer term
0: um, okay so so i think you've like painted the scene, there's a poor quality of data in general around agriculture mm-hmm. in the developing world. What is being done to sort of reverse that trend? Why 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 does an organization like yours exist?
2: What's really exciting about the world of data at the moment, and I'm the first to accept that exciting and data are two words that, oh, that you that. often don't find and in the same If you're centers. listening, you know, you are it's an international development nerd, so you should also get excited <laughs> about data. Hooray, you're my people. Yeah. But... but um, One of the exciting things that's happening at the moment in the world of data is that we have sort of a lot of different things coming together. So first of all, more and more people are understanding the importance of data as part of the kind of critical infrastructure that we need to support almost any development outcome. It's easier to achieve the things you want to do in health, in education, in agriculture if you've got good data. So there's a kind of growing understanding of the importance of data that is also going alongside increased political attention to data. More and more people with political power with money are also starting to care about data. Because they want
0: like their dollar to stretch as far as possible, presumably?
2: Absolutely. And they're also understanding, they want it to stretch as far as possible, and they're also understanding how not having invested that is preventing some of their other dollars from being spent well. Um, so it helps to have better data if you want to spend money on Vaccines or any, any of the other things that, of course, we're very used to donors spending money on. So there's a sort of political increase in interest in data. And then, of course, there's the sort of excitement around the new methods that we have in data, all of the new sources of data that we have in the world, the satellites that are going overhead every day and can take photos of how farmers' fields are changing size in response to drought or where the rivers are changing or Um, What soil quality is much, much cheaper than it used to be to to measure changes in soil quality, for example, because a lot of it you can do from space. Um, So there's a lot of sort of excitement about new methods, plus increased political commitment. We hope to also invest in some of the tried and tested things that we need to keep on doing surveys, sentences, that kind of stuff.
0: So I know some sort of large philanthropies and international uh, institutions are, are sort of getting behind this, this movement. Can you talk a, a little bit uh, about sort of what, for example, the 50 by
2: 2030 initiative is? The 50 by 2030 initiative is it's about getting 50, involving 50 countries in improving their data, their agricultural data by 2030. And there's a number of reasons I'm particularly excited about this initiative. First of all, it's about data. It's one of the first initiatives that have really focused on improving data at the country level. So It's not about just sort of creating some whole new fancy database and putting it on a platform and saying we've solved the data problem because we've just collected more data. It's about actually thinking about the country level. What is it that governments want and need to improve their own policy making and this initiative is very much about supporting that supporting the whole system of agricultural data in a country so it's it's designed to be um, implemented in partnership with those 50 countries. It's a sort of co-funding, um, co-funding scheme. It's based around some of the existing tried and tested survey methods that we already have up and running, that have an infrastructure attached to them. So it's about scaling up things that we know work in ways that will actually not just increase the amount of data in the world, but also increase the use of data within governments to make decisions.
0: Can you maybe cite a specific, you know, data that you're looking forward to collect that isn't currently being co- being collected right now that perhaps under this fifty by twenty thirty rubric will be collected more systematically in the future?
2: Sure. Well, the fifty the, the sort of the heart of the fifty by twenty thirty program is two surveys, which, as I say, are currently being collected in some countries, but not very enough countries are not often enough. Mm-hmm. So it's about building up something that already exists. And there are two surveys which are about um, agricultural production, soil quality, yields, all the kinds of things that governments need to know about farmers and what they're up to and how effective they're being to know how to support them better and what kind of inputs that they need um, and all of that. There are surveys that are done um, every sort of three to five years so over the period from now to 2030, you slowly build up a, um, you build up a sort of long-term picture of change over time, which is another exciting thing about this initiative. It's not just a sort of one-off, let's all go and collect a load of data right now and then walk away. It's about actually collecting data over time because it becomes more valuable the more you have of it, because then you can really start to see the trends over time. So
0: you mentioned uh, 2030, the initiative obviously is called 2030, mm-hmm. that's the um, due date of the sustainable development goals. Can you talk a, a bit about sort of how this initiative, your work fits into the overall sort of achievement of the sustainable development goals as they relate to, to food and, and hunger and, and nutrition?
2: Sure. I mean, hunger certainly is one of the Sustainable development goals, which is going in the wrong direction. Hunger is rising. In I the saw that new report recently yeah. that
0: came out mm. saying that it, in fact, progress has not only stalled, but it's been mm.
2: reversed. Exactly. And a lot of that is two key factors seem to be behind that. One is conflict and rising conflict in some big countries. And the other is climate change and increasing uncertainty of food production, um, in some very poor and fragile regions. And I think this, this initiative is particularly focused on the latter and in helping to kind of understand the changes that are happening and be able to plan for them. So one of the things that we, uh, we've we just done in, in my organization is work with five of our partner countries in Africa and with NASA, the uh, U.S. Space Agency, and a university and data center in Kenya and put together something called the Africa Regional Data Cube, which gives those five countries access to satellite information, which has kind of been already processed and you know, in such a way that it's quite relatively easy to use. Um, and they've got then got this big kind of batch of satellite images going back 17 years, updated every month so they can keep monitoring it almost in real time. And that's going to help them to see what's happening to water courses as the climate changes, how, what's happening to forests, how is, you know, is where is desertification desert happening? as I say, almost in real time. And it's that kind of data that is going to help those governments to really understand sort of what's happening in some regions of the country where... You know, it's hard for people to get to, it's hard for the surveyor to get to. It's not like these are parts of the you know, these are parts of the country which often are fairly invisible to policymakers as well. So it gives you a kind of visibility over time, it gives you a visibility of places that have been quite hidden and issues that we haven't had very good data on.
0: So, you know, we were kind of joking earlier about how data is, is kind of unsexy, uncool, <laughs> but it's sort of like refreshing. To know that, like a lot of the big guns in, in international development, the Gates Foundation, World Bank, are, are are sort of backing initiatives like this to, to kind of do the kind of really like unsexy work that's necessary uh, to achieve these Sustainable Development Goals. You know, like clay. You know. One doesn't like imagine like you know immediately assume that like you know collecting pH levels of of soil is like critical to achieving the sustainable development goals and, and recording those pH levels and sharing those pH levels across uh, various sectors. But it turns out like it, it is
2: absolutely, and I think it's like so much in development. You know, so much of the the sort of shiny exciting stuff depends on all of the boring, unsexy stuff having been done so that people can kind of go that last mile and get the, the shiny, you know, the shiny stuff. You need to have good roads to deliver vaccines. But we don't think about roads when we think about vaccines. And exactly the same way you need to have good data to achieve food security or to achieve good education. And, you know, it's the sort of infrastructure, it's the bedrock upon which the other achievements sit.
0: Uh, well, thank you. This is uh, this is exciting. Congrats on the announcement and uh, looking forward to seeing where this evolves.
2: Thank you very Blake, much. How, nice how to can people to you.
0: follow your work if, if they want
2: to? They can look on our website, which is www.dataforsdgs.org. And we're always very excited to hear from people that have uh, that want to get into partnership with us, that have skills, that have data, that have ideas to offer. So do get in touch. Definitely. And I'll,
0: I'll post a link on, on the website as well. But thank you. Thank you, Mark. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Claire and to everyone who put together that that amazing event at the United Nations. And yeah, like I said earlier, you know, I think it's important to shine a spotlight on some of these meetings and partnerships that are the actual substantive outcome of UN Week. Thank you all for listening and as always a big thank you to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for supporting this show.